0: The scripture reading comes from Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 15. Please follow along in your bulletin or on the screen. In Romans 1, we read,
1: For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I may have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes to the Jews first and also to the Greek for in it The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we read,
0: Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is the word of God.
2: Great. Thank you so much. Will you join me as we pray together? Heavenly Father, uh, loving Savior, gracious Lord, we do come before you this morning because we want to encounter you, the living God. We've come, God, not just to fill our minds with information, not just to be taught some knowledge, but to really meet with you and to encounter you to have our hearts aligned to you and softened by you and to find our hope in you once again. God, thank you as we've sung these songs of the gospel and um, uh, watched the, the, the reenactment or the, the dramatization of the gospel and communion before us. As we've, um, as we've listened to your word, how Paul says, I long to remind you of the gospel. God, thank you that we this morning have been reminded of the gospel. And we, we do pray, God, that as we look at your word, you will speak to us. God, we so long for you to speak to us this morning. We don't need to hear the opinions of man or or some cute ideas. We want the living God to speak to our hearts and our souls, to arrest our fears and the lies that we believe, to give us hope, to speak to our insecurities. Um, God, come and speak to us this morning, we pray, Lord. Come and have your way, God. Father, this morning we also think of our city, this wonderful city which we live, in which we live and which we've come to love. And, as we start out the new year, we, we bring our city before you, and, God, we ask that somehow the, the stalemate and the tensions in our cities will reside uh, this year, God. We, we ask that somehow, God, those that are on both sides, or all sides, that are so angry that, God, somehow our hearts will find rest and peace, that somehow, God, we will be willing to admit where we've been wrong and to say sorry, God. God, I really do pray that this year, God, that Hong Kong will be different to what so many of us are expecting it to be like, God. Let peace reign in our city. We pray for politicians and police and protesters, God, and everyone in between. Oh, God, let peace rest in our hearts, Lord. God, we also just think of the teachers and the scholars and the students that are going to go back to school either this week or maybe have gone back already. Think of people like Iris and uh, Dave and other teachers in our That's Justin, God, and the other teachers that are back at work and teaching. We pray, God, once your spirit rests upon them. We pray, God, as our students go back to school, that you will lead them and be with them. We pray for teachers and students and scholars alike to be a salt and light into our city, God. Um, And so we really do pray for those that are working in the education sector, Christians in our city. God, as they go back this week, won't you go with them, Lord? We pray. And finally, Lord, we want to pray for the churches of Hong Kong. We pray for ourselves and we pray for our brothers and sisters, the English churches, the Chinese churches, all the churches across Hong Kong, Filipino and Indonesian and Japanese and everything else. Oh God, won't you... Send your spirit and rest in our midst, God, and draw us closer to yourself and make us more like you, God, we pray. We pray that as followers of Jesus, we will love you and trust you and obey you more, God. God, just as Paul says in Romans, I long to impart the gospel to you. We pray that the gospel will get deeper in our hearts. The church in Hong Kong will be formed and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we pray for our great city, Lord. May it be in Hong Kong as it is in heaven, God. And so we pray, start with us. We pray these wonderful things in your amazing name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, uh, if you are um, new to Watermark, uh, one of the things that you'll quickly realize is we've got a bunch of values that we talk about all the time. There they are. Gospel, community, and mission. They are on our website. They are on the bulletin. They are on the banners. We are constantly talking about these three things, and today we're going to start a series for a couple of weeks looking at these values, gospel, community, and mission, and we're going to dive down a little bit deeper and explore them. Now, if you've been coming to Watermark for any length of time, one of the things that you hear us talking about again and again and again is the gospel, always talking about the gospel, and uh, what exactly is the gospel? What does it mean to be a church that is centered on the gospel? What does it mean to be a believer that is centered on the gospel? And what are the gospels anyway? Sometimes we think the gospels are just the first four books in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's certainly true. But another question is, if you are a follower of Jesus, let's say you really do believe what the scriptures say about who Jesus is and what he came to do, is the gospel relevant to your life? Maybe the gospel is just something that you believed once upon a time, but now you've got to just try and be a good Christian. How does the gospel have any relevance to our lives as followers of Jesus? Well, that's what we're going to try and answer in the coming weeks. And my hope is that as we do this, rather than maybe having a wide but a shallow understanding of the gospel, my hope and prayer is that the gospel and its implications for our lives, both if you are a spiritual seeker this morning and as well as if you're a Christian, will get deeper into our hearts and we'll understand the richness and the depth of it and the complexity of it and why it matters for us individually and as a church. Okay? So that's where we're going for the next couple of weeks. And I've got to just tell you, I've just got to warn you, I might get a little bit excited today. I am like frothing with excitement to share this with you today. Okay? So if I'm a little excited, I do apologize. It's just the way it is. So let's dive in. Okay? Firstly, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Part of what makes this question so confusing is that the Bible doesn't actually give a simple or simplistic one-sentence answer. Now, I know Tim Keller has given us a one-sentence answer, but the Bible actually has a, a very complex answer. The Bible talks about the gospel in a myriad of different ways. It's kind of like a diamond, right? A diamond is multifaceted, and every time you look at a diamond from a different angle, a different facet, you see a different color or different clarity. Some aspect of the diamond is revealed to you depending at what, uh, depending from what angle you look at it. The gospel is is similar in that there are a thousand different ways to look at it, to understand it. a thousand different aspects from which to appreciate it. And every time it reveals something different about who God is and about who we are. That being said, I'm going to try and give us a simple answer. The word gospel actually means the good news. And many of us might have known that. In the ancient world, a king bears a son. Good news! There is an heir on the throne, or an heir waiting, and so some government announcement will come into the town square, blows trumpet, I bring you good news announcement. The king has had an heir, and everybody cheers and celebrates. A herald will bring a gospel announcement, announcement of good news. The king has had a son. Or maybe another example is your little town or city is at war, and there's the enemy. And uh, this day, there's a big battle going on just over the hills, and your town or city, your army wins the battle. And so a messenger rides back on his horse, comes into town, I bring you good news, a gospel announcement. Our men in arms have won the battle. Uh, We have been victorious. The gospel means good news. It is an announcement of some good news. In the same way, God has an announcement, some good news of great joy. And what is this good news? It is the good news that God, the creator of the world, has made a way for humanity, you and I, to be saved from the consequences of our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is exactly what uh, Jonas read to us. Look at how 1 Corinthians says this. He says, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, the gospel, I want to remind you of the gospel that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, but he was raised on the third day also in accordance with the scriptures, and he made himself known to us. Or said another way, the gospel is the good news that God is not leaving the world as it is. He is rescuing the world from the consequences of the brokenness of sin. And that he has done this by sending himself in the person of Jesus to die on the cross to rise again. And God is now at work putting the world right again. Okay? So the gospel is this announcement of good news. And the way the Bible, but the way the Bible tells it is not just a government official with a white paper. I don't know if we do that in Hong Kong. When the government wants to announce something, they put out a white paper. God didn't just put out a white paper in the government gazette saying, I bring you good news of great joy. The way the Bible tells this good news announcement is actually in the form of a story. And that's what the whole Bible is about. The Bible is this good news announcement in story, in narrative form. And this narrative of the Bible has five chapters or five divisions to it. And actually, as you read every little story in the Bible, David and Goliath, Jonah and the whale, Daniel and the lion's den, Jesus healing the blind man, all these little stories are all not just good advice how to live your life, These are stories that are all telling us they are microcosms of the big story of the Bible, okay? And so what is the big story of the Bible? Well, let's go through those five chapters. So it starts off like this. The first part tells us where we came from. God has created us. I think we've got, there we go, creation, number one. The world came into being because God created the heavens and the earth. Not by mere accident or chance. It is the willful design of God. He is uncreated, and He has created everything that does exist. Part one, creation. But, pretty soon after God made mankind, things go horribly wrong. We rebel against God, and sin enters the world. And this has disastrous consequences for everything that is created. Not just us, but all of creation. Everything now is fallen, or flawed, or a broken version of the intended version that god had planned for us it's a blemished version of itself and we see this most clearly in our relationships so now as human beings we have a flawed or broken relationship with creation rather than serving creation and stewarding it for our well-being we now use and abuse creation for our own benefit We, we use it for ourselves and creation itself is broken particularly those in Australia at the moment, are feeling the consequences of this, right? So we have a flawed relationship with creation. We have a flawed relationship with one another. Rather than serving and loving one another and looking out for each other's interests, what do we do? We now use and abuse each other. We look at how I can use you for my benefit. And the result of this, sexism, racism, anger, animosity, wars and uh, disagreements, We have a flawed relationship with ourselves. Rather than living at peace with ourselves, we now battle insecurity and anxiety and depression, self-doubt, self-loathing, or maybe self-exaltation, self-worship. Our relationship with ourselves is broken as a result of sin. But most significantly, our relationship with God, the Holy God, is broken. So once we're designed to live in relationship with Him by enjoying Him and worshiping Him, Now we are under His just judgment and His holy wrath. Now, as any one of us can attest, the world is out of joint, and we desperately need to be rescued. But where the Bible differs from every other moral philosophy is that God tells us the problem with the world is not primarily horizontal, me and you. The main problem with the world is vertical, me and God. And every that has consequences that overflow into our relationships horizontally. And so we look around us, the problem with the world is racism and sexism and wars and, and creation has fallen and global warming. These are all symptoms of a deeper problem, which is that we are out of sync in our relationship with God. And the pro, it's a disastrous thing to deal with the symptoms, not with the real problem. Imagine you go to your doctor and you say, Um, I've got this fever and I I was walking, you know, I was hiking on the peak and I I cut myself and uh, I've got this cut on my leg and it's all swollen and it looks red and there's some stuff coming out of it and I've got this fever and your doctor says, okay, well, here's Panadol for the fever and here's a plaster for the cut on your leg. That's not a good thing, right? Now, there's an infection inside. You need to deal with the cause. Don't just put a band aid over it. No, we need to deal with the cause. The Bible tells us that all the problems we see around us are symptoms of a deeper cause. We've got to deal with the cause. Chapter 2. Chapter 3, God in His great mercy and His grace, He doesn't leave the world in that state. He does something about it. And this is what most of the Bible is about, or most of the Old Testament. God is showing His people the significant consequences for sin and rebellion. And He's promising to rescue and redeem our fallen world. And so that's the third chapter, God's redemption, His rescue plan. And God rescues the world by reversing the effects of sin and the fall and brokenness. But the way that God does this is not just by pulling out a magic wand, waving it over the world and saying, Abracadabra, be right again. The way that God does this is He sends Himself in the person of Jesus to come and take The curse or the effects of sin upon himself by dying on the cross and rising again uh, for our sin. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus dies in our place. Jesus was born in order to die. Jesus is born in a wooden manger in order to die on a wooden cross. Jesus dies as our substitute, not just as our example, but he doesn't just die as our substitute. He actually comes to reverse the curse, to undo the effects of sin by rising from the grave. And that leads us to the fourth part of the gospel, which is that God is restoring or healing the world, those who trust in him, by putting the world right again. But how does God do this? Well, again, he doesn't pull out his magic wand, abracadabra. He actually does that by getting the gospel into our hearts and through the church getting the gospel into the world. As so God sends us out with His gospel message and by that, he is healing the world. The gospel changes lives. It heals division. It soothes anxiety. It humbles the proud. It brings our hearts shalom and peace again. God is at work healing and fixing our broken world. But God doesn't end, the story doesn't end there. Fifthly and finally... Jesus returns and he wipes away all wickedness and all evil and he consummates his redemption plan. He brings it to completion when he comes again in glory. Okay, there's the five chapters, divisions of the gospel story. Now, I'm sure many of us have heard that before. But the climax of the story, the focal point, the the high point of the story is Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus redemption work on the cross. That's what the Bible is about again and again and again is that this is where hope lies. This is where salvation lies. This is where redemption lies. This is where it all comes back to. This is not only a part of the gospel story. This is the focal point that Jesus hung on the cross in our place, atoning for the sins of the world. As Paul writes in Corinthians, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to each other. Where once there was divorce between us and God, he is reconciling, redeeming, healing, and restoring us not counting humanity's trespasses against themselves. Friends, that one aspect, the climax of Jesus' death on the cross, that aspect of the gospel is so broad and wide and deep and profound that a lifetime of sermons could not even cover the depth of it or the richness of it. And that's why every page of the Bible From Genesis 1 right to the end, every page is dripping with the proclamation of God's good news of the gospel. It all points back to Jesus. And so you read the stories in the Old Testament. They are all telling the story of how one day Jesus will come to rescue the world. So just think of Daniel in the lion's den, right? Daniel is hopeless. He is facing death in the face. He's got no hope of rescuing himself. There he is. Death is staring him. How is he going to save himself? Oh, well, God saves him. God does for him what he could not do for himself. That's a picture of Jesus. There we were facing death in the face. God's judgment. God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. This is the gospel message. Aha. But now, many of us might know that. But one of the dangers is, especially if you've been a Christian for any number of years, subtly, very subtly, all sorts of counterfeit Gospels or false Gospels or anti-Gospels very easily creep into our understanding. Let me uh, highlight a couple of anti-Gospels for us. A couple of ways in which we miss the clarity or the, 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 the sharpness of the Gospel. The first way is this. Sometimes we think the Gospel is good, new, good advice rather than good news. Think about that. What's the difference between good news and good advice? Let's say somebody comes to you and says, I've got good advice for you. I have found there's a a tax-free saving investment, and you should put all your money in there, and you don't need to pay taxes. My advice to you is invest in this vehicle, and you will make a lot of money. Okay? Good advice is saying, here is some theoretical information, But the agency is upon you to act upon it. You've got to do something about it in order to actually act upon it or make it a reality, right? Good advice is here is some information, but actually where anything is going to happen is up to you. Good news, somebody comes to you and says, I've got good news. Uh, I've just got off the phone. You've got some long-lost relative that you didn't know about. They've died, and they've left you $10 million, and it's already in your bank account, Have a happy day, right? That's good news, not just good advice. Good news is something has happened. It's already been done. All you need to do is receive it. You might need to go to the ATM and draw the money, but it's already happened. Friends, the gospel is not good advice, how to clean up your life, how to make yourself a better person, how to make the best out of 2020. The gospel is good news. Something has happened. Jesus has died on the cross to save you, to rescue you, to cover your sins. The gospel is not just good advice about how to make ourselves a better person, meditate on this, develop right thinking. It is an announcement of good news. Though you and I were dead in our sins, under God's curse, facing his judgment, Jesus died on the cross, taking our punishment upon himself, so that we can be declared free from the punishment of sin. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, I'm sorry you are not as excited about this as I am. I'm just going to keep on going, okay, and hope that the excitement wears off. Okay, so one anti-gospel is we confuse good news for good advice. Second anti-gospel is this. We confuse the gospel when we think that it means grace means we don't need to talk about sin. Okay, Charles Spurgeon once said this. The nearer a man or woman gets to God, the more intensely he or she will mourn over their own sinful heart. Oh my goodness, that is so true. That is true of my life. The more I see of God and understand of Him, the more I see my own depravity in my own heart. And the more I mourn over just how wicked and rotten I am. Friends, the gospel doesn't deny or cover over sin like it's not there. It doesn't pretend that it's not there. Grace doesn't throw a blanket over sin and pretend it's not there. Grace exposes sin, but then it helps us deal with it. So picture this, okay? Men, you've got some people coming over for dinner, for a dinner party, and your wife asks you to set the table. No problem. Or maybe your wife does set the table. Beautiful. There's candles, and it's all looking lovely, okay? And you reach over, and you knock over a glass of red wine. And it spills on the beautiful tablecloth that your wife just got for Christmas. Okay, so what do we do? Well, we get a placemat and we quickly put it over the stain, right? We cover over it so that our wife doesn't see it, right? Anyone else done that? (laughs) That, Okay, thank you, honest man. That's not what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't say, okay, let's just cover your sin. Pretend it's not there so that you can feel better about yourself. Friends, that's what religion does. Or maybe religion that says, religion uncovers it, says, "Ha, I see we've got a problem here. You're a sinner. What are you going to do about it? That's not what the gospel does. The gospel uncovers it and says, my dear friend, we've got a problem here. There's this problem with our hearts. But Jesus has come to help you. Jesus has come to rescue you. Jesus has come to deal with the sin of our lives, to wash us clean. You see... The temptation is just to cover over and say, let's not talk about sin. Let's just pretend it's not there and just talk about the happy things. Religion says, oh, you've got a problem. Now sort yourself out. Fix yourself. Clean up your act. And when you've cleaned up your act, then you can come to church and be with us, right? Us righteous people. That's what religion says. Jesus says, welcome, sinners. I've come to to accept you, to love you. Let's deal with what's going on under the surface. Okay, so the second way is we think that grace means we don't need to walk what's sin. The third way in which we confuse the gospel for a false gospel, a counterfeit version of the gospel, is we think that salvation is some kind of JV, joint venture between us and God. Like we partners in this joint venture. Okay, okay God, you can be 60%, I'll be 40%. You, you can be 80%, I'll take a 20% share in this venture. Friends, the gospel tells us it is all of God and none of us. The gospel is not God's grace plus my goodness, God's grace plus my morality, God's grace plus my effort. The gospel is all of God. There is nothing I can do to earn or deserve God's grace or His love or merit or warrant His forgiveness. Friends, if you and I rely on anything other than His undeserving grace for His acceptance and love, it is like building our lives on a house of cards. Or on a sand foundation. It's just a matter of time before it's going to be washed away. The one sure foundation is God saves us because He is gracious. Because for some reason, He's chosen to love us and forgive us. All of God, not of us. Jonathan Lehman, who's a pastor in the U.S., he tells the story of when he was in his 20s, he was grappling with this. And so he goes to his pastor and he says, Pastor, I get that it's mainly God, right? But surely I did some of it. Like, let's say I'm drowning in my sins. And there I am. I'm drowning in my sins. And Jesus comes along in a speedboat. And he reaches down and says, here I am. I'm offering you salvation. He, re- he puts his hand down. Surely I needed to grab hold of his hand. I needed to do something to, to be saved, right? And Donton Lehman's pastor, Mark Deaver, takes him to Ephesians chapter 2. And he says, Let's just read this together. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our sins, you are saved by grace. And then he turns to Jonathan and says, my dear brother, you weren't just drowning. You were drowned. You were dead at the bottom of the sea with no life in you. And Jesus dived down and brought you up and breathed life into you. You didn't save yourself. Jesus saved you. You see, sometimes we can think salvation, the gospel, is me plus Jesus. Jesus does most of it, but I bring my good works. I bring my effort. I hold on to him. No, friends, Jesus, when we had nothing, Jesus breathed life into us and saved us completely of his own accord. And that's what Paul says here in Romans 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. There's there's a power that breathes life into our dead souls. And it's a power that comes from outside of us, not from inside of us. You see, most religions or moral philosophy will say, you want to be a good person? Well, look inside of you. Uh, Well up the effort. Be a better person. Think of your dreams and your goal. Envision a better version of yourself. Uh, Muscle up the resources to try and be a kinder, nicer person this year. One of my goals for this year that I'm praying for is to be a better husband and a better dad. Man, I've, I've got to be a better dad this year. And I, but religion will say, Kevin, look inside of yourself how you can be a better dad. Jesus says, Kevin, I've come to change your heart. I've come to rescue you. It is, there's a power in the gospel that changes us from the outside inside. The gospel cuts right across and says, as for me, I was dead in my sins. But Jesus came when I had no hope to myself. Jesus came to me who was guilty, helpless, powerless state, and he did for me what I could not do for myself. He died the death I deserved to die, and now he breathes his spirit into me, changing me from the inside to make me the person that he's called me to be. That's the gospel. Okay, so all of that. What does that mean for us at Watermark Church? Who who cares, right? Right? How should that actually impact 2020? Well, again, you know what I'm going to say, right? I'm so glad you asked that question. Okay, that joke's getting a little old, I know, but as long as Ed laughs at it, I'm going to keep on using it, okay? Um, What does that actually mean for us? One of the things you'll notice, as we said earlier, that at Watermark, we are constantly going on and on about the gospel. Every Sunday, our hope is to be that we flood each other, with the gospel. And everything we do, from the call to worship up front, Iris did an awesome job this morning. Where are you, Iris? Awesome job. Isaiah 53. Just flooding us with the good news of the gospel. The songs we sang, Man of Sorrows. Oh, what, what a, every song is, is just full, flooded with the message of Jesus and the gospel. And then we take communion almost every week to reenact, to dramatize in front of us in picture format the gospel. This is Christ's body broken for us this is blood shed for us hopefully every sermon is full of the message of the gospel and if you do the members class in a month's time the first week is just all about the gospel and then you do the baptism class the first week is all about the gospel everything we are on about is the gospel why why is it such a big deal for us well let's look at our passages that we read to us earlier look at what paul says in romans chapter one Paul writes this letter to a church in Rome. So he has a bunch of believers. They're really believers. They're not spiritual seekers that are trying to make sense of the claims of Christ. They are followers of Jesus. And he says this, I very much want to come and see you, my brothers and sisters, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. That is that we can be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. I don't want you to be unaware. I've often planned to come to you, but have been prevented until now. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Who on Rome? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, Jews and Greeks, etc. Now, why does Paul want to go to the Rome, to the Christian church, and preach the gospel to them? Surely they know the gospel already. Well, look at what happens in Corinthians. Paul says again, he writes this amazing letter, and he says, "Now, brothers, let me just remind you of the gospel: that Jesus died for our sins, that he was raised on the third day, and made himself known to us." That's what we're trying to do. As a church, we're trying to remind one another week in and week out of the gospel. Why? Well, let me give us a couple of reasons. There's a myriad of reasons, but let me just focus on three of them, and then we're going to land. The first one is this. Because we forget the gospel so easily. Now, when I say forget, I don't mean we forget the data points, right? Like, it's Thursday afternoon, and you're trying to think, who is the guy that died on the cross again? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We don't forget the the, the data points. We, we know that. But the gospel, we forget the potency of it. it. It's no longer vivid and real and powerful and beautiful in our minds. And part of the reason for that is 60 hours a week, you're at the office, in the marketplace, and you're being hammered hour after hour by a false gospel. That your hope is in money. That your hope is in your children's education. That your hope is in that promotion or that career or that Idyllic house in the Maldives or something. Every hour you're being hammered by a false gospel. And one hour a week we come here and are being reminded of it. And so most often we live our lives and the potency and the power and the vividness of what Jesus did for us kind of like fades away. And as a result of that, false gods and false idols become increasingly more vivid and real to us. Friends, I see this in my life all the time. When the potency of the gospel is no longer vivid and real to me, when it's leaking from my heart, I start to operate out of all sorts of insecurities and fears. I feel like I need to prove myself. I need to put my best foot forward. I need to put an image, project an image. I feel like I get defensive. In my mind, I start to magnify the faults of others, make them bigger than they really are, and I minimize my own faults. And make other people to make myself feel better about myself. Friends, you've got to know this might be shocking to you. Most Sundays I come to church full of weakness and insecurities. Most Sundays I come to church feeling like I, I'm not good enough. Is anyone gonna like my sermon? I've got a brief confession. In the first year that I came to that I was here in Hong Kong, every Sunday I'd come to church and think, This is the Sunday when they're all going to see who I really am. This is is the week, right? And every Sunday, I'd come to church thinking, this week, I'm sure, is the week. They've all decided to go to another church, okay? This is the end. Every week, I came full of insecurities. This thing's going to fall apart. Now, I've worked through some of that, and I'm a little bit better. But honestly, most weeks, I come to church full of weakness, aware of what a lousy husband and father I am, aware of my sin and my brokenness, I just come feeling like, oh my goodness, God, how can you ever love me, accept me, never mind allow me to stand up and, and speak on behalf of you, never mind pastor this amazing church. Friends, what I need every Sunday is not to come to church and being told, you can be a better version, pluck yourself up. I need to come and be told, yes, Kevin, it's true, you are a sinner, that's true, but God loves you not because of your performance Not because of how good you are or bad you are. He loves you because he's chosen to love you. Because he died on the cross for you. Kevin, your identity is in Jesus and his death on the cross. Not in your performance. Friends, every week I come and I need to be reminded of the extravagant good news of the gospel. It needs to flood my heart week in and week out. Now just by the way, this is one of the reasons why I really don't like being called Pastor Kevin. If you want to call me Pastor Kevin, that's okay. I won't fight with you. But secretly inside, I die. And the reason is this. Because I feel like when people call me Pastor Kevin, it puts me on a pedestal. Like there's normal Christians and then there's the pastor, right? He's like somehow better than the rest of us. And that's just not true. Friends, this church, 100%, from the preacher in the front to those of us that are somewhere else, maybe you've come and hung over this morning and you're not feeling your best, 100% of us are sinners in need of Christ's grace. And Jesus says, I love you, not because of your performance, not because of what you've done for me, but simply because I've chosen to love you and I died on the cross for you. And so the reason we come and the reason we make a big deal of the gospel is because we forget it and we need to be reminded of it. Second reason is this. Because when we forget the gospel, we are robbed of its spiritual power. Now, we're going to look at this more next week. But when the gospel sinks into our hearts, there really is a power to it. It transforms us and it changes us. And the way it does that is it changes the driving motivations and ambitions of our hearts, it it changes our desires. When we forget the gospel, when it's not vivid to our hearts, we are robbed of that spiritual power, that potency that changes the motivations and the driving force of our lives. God really does want us to live lives of holiness. But we can do so from the wrong motivation, from wicked motivation. The gospel gives us the power to live the lives that he's called us to. And so, friends, how are we going to become the people that God's called us to? How are we going to overcome the idols in our hearts, the idols of people-pleasing? How many of us struggle with that? I do. How are we going to overcome the idol of sexual sin and addiction? How are we going to overcome the things like gossip and slander or anger and unforgiveness in our hearts? Scripture says you don't beat those things just by telling yourself, be a better person, try harder. We beat those things as the gospel gets into our hearts and melts our hearts. There's a power that changes the control center of our lives and makes us the people God's called us to. Here's a third and final reason, and then we almost done. Why we go on and on and on and on about it is this. Because the consequences of neglecting the gospel are disastrous. D.A. Carson said this amazing, amazing thing. I want you to think about this. One generation believes the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel. The third generation denies the gospel. Just think about that for a second. So let's think about us as a church, Watermark Church. Let's just say, hey guys, we we know the gospel. Okay, we believed it, that's good. Now we've got to be good people. Let's just focus on growing our Christian knowledge and our understanding and being righteous people. Okay. Well, yeah, we, we believe it. Let's just be good people. In five, six, ten years' time, what happens? We kind of just start to assume it. So yeah, yeah we, we know it's there. It's on our website somewhere, I'm sure. So somewhere in some document, we believe the gospel. But it's no longer vivid and potent. It's no longer beautiful to us. We're no longer humbled by it. It's no longer challenging our lives. It doesn't melt our hearts and our insecurities. And then a couple of years goes by and, and maybe... Somebody, maybe one of the leaders, say, you know, all this talk of sin, it's a bit negative. The world is negative as it is. Let's, not, let's just focus on the positives. Let's not talk about sin so much. Let's talk about how Jesus came to die as a good example for us, to show us how to forgive our enemies. And we just assume the gospel. And then a couple of years goes by, five, ten years, and maybe someone says, you know, if Jesus died as our example... Maybe he wasn't divine. He didn't need to take on the judgment of God. Maybe he's just a good moral man that showed us how to be a good moral men. You see, one generation believes it, and it's vivid. But when you assume it, a generation goes by, and we just kind of, it's in the background. But before we know it, another generation goes by, and we start to deny it. So Jesus wasn't really divine. He was just a good man, helping us to be good men. One generation believes the gospel. The next then assumes it. The third denies it. Friends, this is why at Watermark, we love the gospel, but it's also why we never, ever want to become a second generation gospel church. We as elders, pastors, members, those of us that are visiting us, we must be a church which is founded upon, centered upon, constantly rejoicing, hoping, delighting, singing, praying, telling people about the wonder of the good news of great joy that Jesus died for us. John Piper put it like this. This is my prayer for us as a church family, for my personal family, and for my own heart this year. John Piper says this, seek to see and to feel the gospel as getting bigger as the years go by rather than smaller. Our temptation is to think that the gospel is for beginners, and then we go on to greater things. But the real challenge, friends, is to see the gospel as the greatest thing and getting greater in our lives all the time. The gospel gets bigger when in our heart, grace gets bigger. Christ gets greater, his, his death gets more wonderful, his resurrection more astonishing, the work of the Spirit gets mightier, its power is more pervasive, its global extent wider, your own sin gets uglier, the devil gets more evil, the gospel's roots into eternity go deeper and its connections with everything in the Bible and in the world get stronger. So keep this in mind, never let the gospel get smaller in your heart. Pray that it won't. Read books about it. Sing about it. Tell someone who's ignorant and unsure about it. But whatever you do, never let the gospel get smaller in your hearts. Friends, as we start this year, it may be a good time for us to evaluate where our hearts at. Have we assumed the gospel? Have we forgotten the seriousness and the importance of it, but also the great wonder and the good news of great joy? Friends, is Jesus and his death on the cross still vivid and real and potent to our hearts? Is the kindness and the patience and the gentleness of God still calling us to confession and repentance? Is the cross of Jesus convicting us of the seriousness of our sin and calling us back to him? Is the excruciating cross of Jesus still announcing good news that because of God's profound and inexhaustible love for us, Jesus willingly and gladly went to the cross for you and I? Friends, is God's redemption story melting our hearts so that we are humble and not judgmental, gracious and forgiving, extending to others the same grace that we've received ourselves. Friends, is God's great redeeming and rescuing story melting the insecurities and our fears, our quietening the accusations and the lies, and drawing us to greater levels of loving, trusting, and obeying Jesus. Friends, is the cross of Christ still glorious and wonderful? Is God's mercy still good news to us? I want us to close in a time of prayer. And the way we're going to do this is a little different. I've written a prayer for us on the screen. And I'd love us to pray this together. Maybe the musicians can come up to the band. And um, it's up on the screen. There's two slides. But let's just take a minute or two. And then I'd love to ask us to read this out loud together. And uh, we'll pray it together. maybe we we'll can just put the second slide on for a few seconds. Okay, let's go back to the first one. Let's pray this together. Heavenly Father... Thank you for the incredibly good news of the gospel, that though I was dead in my sin without any way of rescuing or saving myself, you, God, did for me what I could not do for myself. Father, I confess that so often I forget this good news. I take it for granted, looking to myself rather than you for my hope, my justification, and my life. Father, forgive me, I pray. Father, help me never to forget the gospel. Drive it deeper into our hearts. May your life and death speak to our insecurities and our fears, our hopes and our dreams, our disappointments and setbacks. God, may your great love and your unceasing kindness melt our hard hearts, call us to repentance, soften our attitudes, and humble our pride. God, may we build our life on you. Your love, your astoundingly good news, we pray. Amen.